Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening. Are your kids struggling with reading and writing? Get them the support they need with Read and Write software for the desktop, Google, or iPad. These proven software solutions help those with reading and writing difficulties, learning disabilities, or English language learners. Read and Write Gold text-to-speech software provides tools for reading, writing, studying, and research for students while they work within the common applications they use every day. Learn how the Read and Write family of products can help your struggling students by visiting www.texthelp.com or call 888-248-0652. If you're ready to buy now, get 10% off when you buy on their online store with the Coffee Clutch code, and that code is CK, that's capital CK, 14, save, and the number 10. I'll say it one more time, CK, 14, save, 10. Now, I want to welcome you. My name is Dr. Richard Selznick, and I want to welcome you to School Struggles. I'm proud to be a part of the Coffee Clutch team, and on School Struggles, we talk about a range of topics, including learning disabilities, dyslexia, special ed, and a whole host of others. I am the child psychologist and director of the Cooper Learning Center, which is part of the Department of Pediatrics, Cooper University Healthcare, located in Voorhees, New Jersey. I am the author of two books, both published by Sentient Publications. The first one, The Shutdown Learner, Helping Your Academically Discouraged Child, and the more recently published book called School Struggles. And you can learn more about these at my website, www.shutdownlearner.com. And tonight I am thrilled to have Mr. Ben Voss, come on our show. He is the author of the Dyslexia Empowerment Plan. Ben Foss is a prominent inventor, entrepreneur, and activist who founded Headstrong Nation, a not-for-profit organization dedicated to serving the dyslexic community. Ben is also the inventor of the Intel Reader, a device CNN called Too Groundbreaking to Ignore. The Intel Reader is a mobile device that takes photos of text and reads and reads it out aloud on the spot to people who have difficulty with text, creating what Ben calls a ramp into a book. Identified as a dyslexic at the age of eight, Ben became successful by developing a unique approach to his disability. After years of hiding his 
dyslexia, he challenged himself to use it as a bridge to the rest of the world, realizing that if he thought of himself as being from dyslexia, he could integrate his history and harness his strengths. As a compassionate and skilled speaker, he shares this message with Fortune 500 companies, human resources, and public policy organizations, and colleges and universities across the country. Um, Ben's Ben Foss's website is www.headstrongnation.org. I just want to tell you that his book is a wonderful book. I'm starting to recommend it to lots of my families and parents. Who uh, the, the book is loaded with great nuggets and, and wonderful uh, advice for parents and, and, and educators. So, Ben, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here, and happy 2014. Yes, Happy New Year to you, too, as well. So why don't you t- talk to us a little bit about uh, your background and how you, you know, the journey that you took to get to this point. Sure. Well, well, first and foremost, I'm a person who is dyslexic. So I was in special ed. I was part of the first generation to be identified and put into special education for this reason. And as a result, I came up in a school system and experienced a lot of the things that young children are experiencing today. And part of my the premise of the book is that if your kid could grow up and tell you what's really going on with them, they might tell you some of the stories that I relate in the book. The other thing that I, I'm trying to do in this book is to show that dyslexia should be about strengths and not about shame. And a lot of people focus on phonemic awareness or the specific academic skills, but they miss the larger picture, which is the emotional health of your child and supporting them to be independent. And you need to trade off focusing on rote academic skills with figuring out what your kid is strong at and figure out how to make them powerful in a school environment so they can be an engaged learner and someone who's really going to enjoy the process of getting an education. You know, it's, uh, I, I think about as you're talking that I had mentioned or talk about, I think you would relate to the idea of your, um, in a sense, your emotional, the fuel tank. And, and I think that the, the shame, which you mentioned as fact number one, that shame is, the, you, you say, is the challenge of dyslexia. I would think of shame draining off emotional fuel. So could you speak to that a little bit and, and elaborate on your fact number one? Sure, absolutely. And these facts are on the headstrongnation.org website, and they are listed there free. A lot of the insights that are in the book are there. There's also great videos that explain a lot of right. it, because, of course, for dyslexic people, text is not always the best way to go. Now, in terms of um, shame, I think the most important thing to understand about shame is shame is feeling bad about something you are as opposed to guilt, which is feeling bad about something you did. So if you cheat or lie or steal or do something that is unethical, you should feel bad about it. But if you're just born a certain way, if you're from New Hampshire or you're a woman or you're a person of color or you're dyslexic, that's just a characteristic. And the impressions that society brings on that issue will often influence you. But ultimately, it's the voice in your own head that's the most important voice. And if we're going to help kids, and it's a large number, it's about 10% of the population, some people will go as high as 20 that are in this camp, we really need to focus on figuring out how to help them tell their story. 
the unique thing about dyslexia as compared to many other disabilities is that it arrives in a, in a family at the time that a child is going through a process psychologists call individuation. So when they're beginning to leave their household and become part of a school system, they look up to teachers, they look up to their friends, and those groups often don't treat them very well if they fail at the first thing that they're really evaluated on, which is reading or spelling. And the result can be a really deep psychological wound. A, a friend of mine described it as articulated in the book as slow drip trauma, the process of being forced to learn to read only one way. Um, and that, that's another key thing I talk about is changing the language and saying that this is not a disease. And in fact, there's a lot of strengths that come with this profile. Do you, do you remember yourself, when do you, your shame-based experiences in the classroom as a Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember being um, uh, harassed by people in school. I I went to say friends, but they weren't really good friends if they were treating me and making fun of me. And then I remember teachers telling me I needed to work harder or focus or put in more effort. And the real pain then came when I began hiding it. The essence of shame is hiding your dyslexia, hiding who you are, trying to pretend that you're not something. Now, if I felt shame over the fact that I'm from New Hampshire, which is where I grew up, and I tried to pretend I was from Vermont or Maine or New York City or somewhere else, if anyone ever found out I was from New, Ham- from New Hampshire, I'd feel terrible. And that's what happens with the kid who's dyslexic. They don't want to be seen as being in special ed. There's a lot of rage and a lot of frustration that comes with that. And so at an early age, I started coming up with ways to pretend that I wasn't dyslexic. I even won a bookmark contest in my local library when I was in third grade. Now, I hadn't read a whole book at that point, but I figured out a way to draw a bookmark that won an award, and that got me attention for being interested in books. So I followed it. Um, A more intense example came later when I was about 15. I was trying to make the varsity soccer team, and I failed to do so, and I came very close but made an embarrassing mistake on the last day of tryouts. And that day, I went down the field when no one was looking, and I punched the goalpost so hard that I broke my own hand. And rather than admit to the coach or to my family that I'd done this, I hid that and used it as a story about, well, I didn't make varsity because I broke my hand that day at practice, never revealing that I had intentionally broken my own hand. Kids are doing this kind of thing today. And so when experts say, well, we've got to get every kid learning to read exactly the same way, there's a cost that's hidden there, and I think it's very dangerous to set that standard. Um, And I point out that there's actually three types of reading. There's eye reading, there's ear reading, and there's finger reading. So blind people use Braille, and we would never say that they're lazy for reading Braille. Mainstream readers read with their eyes. I use my ears, so I use audiobooks from organizations like Learning Ally or Bookshare, and I also use digital talking computers, so I have my computer read out loud very fast to me. And that's a way that I can convert content into a format I can use, essentially that ramp into a book you mentioned earlier. Right, so that, that those become... <clears throat> I know in, your, uh, in the Dyslexia Empowerment Plan you spend a, a great deal of time uh, talking about the best of of uh, accommodations and of assistive technology, so that's what you're making reference to now, correct? Yeah, I mean, the, the book is laid out in three major sections. The first part is sort of learning the facts, and it's getting rid of the myths, it's figuring out what your kids' strengths are, because there are a lot of strengths that come with this profile. 
And then the middle part is about empowering it. And that's where you really teach your child to dream big and then go through a toolkit of accommodations, which is what you were just describing, figuring out low-tech accommodations, like, for example, um, getting access to uh, a, a whiteboard in the classroom or allowing a kid who is ADHD to get up and move around during a classroom environment in a respectful way to high-tech ones. Most of most cell phones today have a built-in speech engine that if 10 years ago we'd heard it, we would have thought it was amazing science fiction, but now it's built into every single phone. And learning how to use those technologies can really make a huge difference for, for, for kids. Uh, the final piece, then, is the legal piece, which is also important. And it's a very confusing and uh, complicated thing. But if you get a couple of basic principles and you learn a couple of key phrases, parents can really be empowered in their conversation with their schools and their school districts. Is it too much to, uh, to comment on, on a couple of those now? Sure, absolutely. I think in, in the context of the law, the first thing you need to learn is that the law functions best when it's a bodyguard, which is to say it stands behind you with a sunglasses looking menacing, but it doesn't do a whole lot. You don't want to get into court. You don't want to start filing lawsuits because it gets expensive and time-consuming, and then the other side gets their bodyguards, and pretty soon you've got a full-out war going on. That's Instead, the very ad- in a sense, that's the, ad- that's the very adversarial approach. So you're saying, exactly. Right? And, yeah. yeah. But you, what you want to say is, I do understand how the adversarial process would work, and I don't want to go there, but if you did, this is what I think would happen, and sort of presenting it in that context. So, for example, um, there are, there are uh, three laws that you really need to get a framework on. The first is the 1973 Rehabilitation Act. They call it Section 504, uh, which is the section that pertains to rights in the, in, a, in the educational context. And the specific detail is that if you get money from the federal government, which pretty much every public school and many private schools in the United States do, even if it's an assisted meal program or, a, or a, a drug prevention program, these laws are in place. And they protect the rights of people with disabilities. The next law that's important is the Individuals with Disability Education Act, IDEA. That is the special ed law, and that's the money. That's the funding, and you need to get an individualized education plan uh, developed under that. And then finally, there's the Americans with Disabilities Act, the law that protects veterans and seniors and all the other folks with disabilities in our, in our society, and that's also a relevant law. And if you can learn about 10 minutes worth of content about each of those, you really will have the basics to have a conversation so that the school will understand that you know your rights and you expect them to be um, supported by the school district. Now, you, you, that's great. That's, and, I, and I think that breaking it down to those three components is wonderful and very helpful to people. And you also talk about uh, beware of poor or fake accommodations. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, oftentimes a bureaucracy will take the path of least resistance. So the thing that's the easiest for them to do is the one that they will offer. For example, they might say, tell you what, we're just going to give the kid extra time. We're not going to offer a book on tape. We're not going to offer a note taker. We're not going to offer an accommodation like Learning Ally or Bookshare, which are um, free and low-cost services that provide audiobooks. Instead, we're just going to give extra time. Now, if we said that a kid in a wheelchair, when pushed up to a set of stairs, would get extra time to go up the stairs, we would immediately realize that this was unfair. What we should do is get them a ramp. 
But in many cases, a bureaucracy doesn't want to spend the money to build a ramp if it isn't forced to do so. The law says it has to, but if you're not aware that the law says that, you can't ask in the right way, and therefore you may not get the support that you need. So I would say the most common fake accommodation is extra time. Now, in certain environments, let me be very clear about this, extra time is useful. But that's when, for example, getting to the ramp at the school takes a little longer than getting to the stairs. If the ramp's on the side of the building and you go around, well, you get a little extra time, but not just to crawl up the stairs by yourself. Right. So, so for certain children, the extra time when they are particularly, let's say, slow readers, and I, I think you made a point that it's not that they're slow thinkers, but they might be inefficient readers, that extra time may, may be helpful. But, it, but there are many situations where it's not particularly helpful. It may, yeah. And, and, and I think the key thing is to understand that extra time doesn't solve everything. For example, right. I, as an adult, am still dyslexic, and I still use these accommodation technologies, and I still spell terribly. I mean, I have a law degree and a business degree from Stanford, and so a lot of people think, well, he must have cured his dyslexia. Not the case. I am still terribly dyslexic, and extra time doesn't always solve an error. It's in, in the science context, you would say this is a signal-to-noise ratio, that you've got too much noise in your signal. Mm-hmm. And so an example of that would be um, a couple years back, I was giving a talk at a big event for dyslexia. Didn't feel well, so I took a bunch of Tylenol. Felt worse took some more Tylenol. That night, I slept terribly. Actually, I I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. I was just feeling terrible. Three or four days later, I'd been taking Tylenol all week. I looked at the bottle for like the 10th time, and I saw that it was Tylenol PM. I'd been taking the version that has a mild sedative in it, and it was exactly the wrong thing for me to take on the day of doing a big speech. But I'd missed that. And this is with all of my, you know, fancy education and all that. So... Extra time isn't always going to solve it. What I needed in that environment was someone to read that label out loud to me and help me notice the PM part. I also think the, the it's a great story. I also think the extra time frequently given under for ADHD kids. You know, I don't know the ADHD kids that I know. The last thing they want to do is <laughs> stay with this work twice as long. They're trying to get through it half. You know, in the half time. You know, they, they don't want it twice as long. No, I mean, the that's parents, a real factor. The parents seem comforted by it. The parents seem sort of comforted by it, but the kids are looking at it like, what, are you kidding me? The, the, the other one that I would watch out for is what's called um, RTI, response mm-hmm. to instruction. Um, and RTI was originally designed as a way to help kids stay in the mainstream classroom. This is a technique that many schools have adopted. Unfortunately, it is often poorly implemented, and the result can be that a kid can end up getting in this loop where they never get a formal identification as having a disability and being in special ed, and therefore they don't have those rights in the um, all of the different laws that I mentioned earlier. So they get kept out of the legal box of having rights, and they end up not progressing in their learning because they're using ineffective methods. And unfortunately, school districts, in some cases, Recently, in 2011, the Department of Education even issued a letter saying that school districts should stop using RTI to delay it. Some people call it waiting to fail, and I'll just say if you actually put that acronym together, it's WTF. I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) Yeah, it's sort of a – the RTI could really translate into a long delaying, stalling tactic when it's not implemented properly. 
Uh, now you also talk about dyslexia. One of your facts, we won't be able to get through all of them tonight, but I think this is an interesting one. Dyslexia is not caused by bad parenting. So how can you uh, reassure some of the parents listening out there? Tonight? Well, first off, um, the, the data very strongly indicates that this is a genetic profile, and it comes, it's inherited. It's much like your height or uh, your skin color. It comes from your genes. And while uh, you can be slightly different than your parents, there's a good chance that that's going to be the source of what you're going to come out like. It is the case that, um, you know, a parent who is attentive and focused and supportive can get the environment around their child to change, and that's important. But it's not because you failed to start reading early or it's not because you didn't listen to baby Einstein tapes while the kid was you know, in utero. Right. The, the main thing to understand is that print itself is a social fiction. We invented this as a society about 5,000 years ago. Actually, the Sumerians did it for us. And it's only within the last 100 years that we have any expectation that the majority of people in the first world would use their eyes to consume information. In fact, one of the people I love to point out as someone who was strongly against the use of text was Socrates. He was actually, by modern standards, illiterate, and he believed that it would cause people to, quote, lose the memory of their souls if they just wrote everything down and sent each other letters, rather than engage in thought and speak their mind. So Socrates was, was, was in a sense, railing against the, the technology of the day, like the, the iPad, effectively, at that time, right? You know, right? Yeah, he was saying, I wish people would talk to me. They'd just give me a call. You know, um, right. that's that's what he was saying. Now, now I, I will credit Plato with writing it down, so we were able to remember that. So print does have value, and I want to stress one important thing here: every kid has a right to learn to read with their eyes if they have that capability. Just as every kid has a right to learn to walk upstairs if they have that so capability. To, so to clarify, you're, it's not that you're against. Uh, bringing, say, the Orton-Gillingham methodologies, which are the methods that are typically recommended for ch children and adults with dyslexia. You're not against training children to read, but you're, it's, it's almost like at the same time you're trying to empower them with other technologies. Is that the way to, good way to I think that is the way to talk about it. And in the book, I recommend at least two years of Orton-Gillingham training, which is the, uh, you know, we call it OG. Um, Orton-Gillingham is, is, is the gold standard for accommodation and instruction. Um, I do think, however, that you want to introduce audio reading at the same time. And I think this would be good for all children. I think in first grade, there should be a couple weeks uh, each year where everyone just learns to use an audio book. It's a very different skill set than using a paper book. And we've put this value on the paper book, and it's a social choice. It's, it's kind of like the Windows operating system. Somehow someone decided that that was going to be the system, and we all have to live with it. But it's not necessarily the best system in all cases. You, you also mentioned a couple of – you mentioned some of the top mythologies that are, that are out there, and I, and I think that there, you know, there, there are many. What are some of the top ones that you, that you like to discuss? Well, I think the strongest one is that kids or even adults who are dyslexic are lazy and or stupid. 
and that this is a function of how hard they're willing to work. It's really a hard one because the truth is if you're dyslexic, the odds are you're working much harder than your peers in order to keep up in a mainstream classroom. And so it feels particularly tough to hear that accusation. And this is not a, a narrowly held belief. If you look at polls that have been done uh, most recently in 2010 by the Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation, they did a big poll and it turns out that 50% of people in the United States when asked whether specific learning disabilities were just a result of, quote, laziness, if they agreed with that. And it's a very common thing for people to make that assumption because the nature of this disability is that it's not obvious. You can't see right. it. And so if I tell you I have difficulty with this, if I had, for example, no hands or I was in a wheelchair, clearly I have difficulty with it. But if I have nothing that you can see outside, then there's a real problem. On the other hand, if you look at the brain images, and again, those brain images are on the headstrongnation.org website, those brain images show that there is a reduced activity in the region of the brain that does reading. And it's a very clear physical signature. We just can't see it without some fancy tools. I, I've said for many years, talking to parents, I said, look, what, you know, when they say they're getting resistance from the school for, for recommending, say, um, you know, a, a text-to-speech technology, I said, well, what if, the, what if your child truly were blind? Mm-hmm. You know, they would be bending over backwards to to get accommodations for that child. So why, why don't we just make believe that your severely dyslexic child is blind, and we'll you know let's we'll see if they'll if they'll bring in the appropriate accommodations at that point. And I, I agree with you. I think one of the challenges in that space, is, and this happened in my own family, is that parents will be resistant to that because they worry for their child. They love sure. their child, and they want to think, well, maybe we can, we can use this particular uh, cure to get rid of this so-called disease, but there's no disease, and therefore there's no cure. I see that on our board, I know we were going to go to a half hour. I might be able to go past a little time. I'm going to see if anyone would like to call in and ask Great. Ben a question. The call-in number is 646-595-2881. So if I see you calling in, I will try to bring you up on the screen. Now, Ben, you, you also talk about teachers falling into one of is it okay if we go past 8.30 a little bit, Ben? We'll go a little bit I'm, I'm fine okay? to do that, absolutely. Okay, and, and, and for the um, dyslexics out there, you might want to repeat that number because I know we can't always follow the numbers. <laughs> yeah, and for, the, and for those of us who are bad with numbers like I am, you know, uh, the number is 646-595-2881. Now, you talk about teachers falling into one of five groups. Can you speak to those groups a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a real range of, um, of of how teachers approach it. And I want to stress that nobody gets into teaching because they don't want to teach children. Right. It is not a very well-paid profession in the public school system, and it involves a tremendous amount of work and training in order to be uh, proficient in doing this incredibly important job. I also think it's important to understand that teachers operate in an environment which is often not totally supportive. I mean, it's a budget environment, and it's a, um, a an environment that creates pressures on them in order to do all kinds of 
um, all kinds of really complicated things. Now, I think there's a range of how people um, respond to this, and some of them are quite enlightened. There, is a, there's, there's, there are some that will go out of their way to alter the way their school environment's working, or they may have already done so in a really incredible way. There are also some private schools that have done an incredible job of, um, of making sure that they've got uh, the right accommodations in place, and in many cases are some of the best, um, the best schools in the country, bar none, just the ways in which they uh, think through education and the ways in which they handle the, uh, the, the teaching of all children, regardless of their particular um, their particular piece. Now, the, the, the various categories, I don't know that we need to run through every single right. category, but I'll, I'll tell you right. there's a spectrum. At the extremes, I think there are a small number of teachers who just get it right away, maybe because they're dyslexic, maybe because they've been through this before. And at the opposite end of the spectrum, I think there's a small number of teachers who really don't want to play ball. And no matter what you tell them, they're not going to be interested. I had a French teacher when I was growing up, and my mother essentially had to go to war with her over whether I was going to be allowed to use accommodations. And I remember she went in and, and met with the teacher and said, look, he can't spell in English. How is he going to spell in French? And the teacher said, well, this is the way we do it. It's spelling and reading and that's it. Um, and you'll run into that. I think the majority of the teachers are in the middle bucket and that they either are getting, on the one hand, they don't have the right information, so they haven't been given the background that they need to understand dyslexia. They think of it as a struggling reader in the way that you might think of a child who had never been taught how to walk, and if we practice walking, they'll learn it, as opposed to a child who has a physical impairment that limits that capability. The challenge is that if you stick with the mainstream way of teaching reading, you will end up making that kid feel shame because they don't make the progress that their peers make, and the result is they can feel really pretty far behind. There was a, a friend of mine who went to a San Francisco school, a private school, and in their school district, they had reading groups in this uh, private school for these kids. There was the Eagle Group for the best readers, there was the Hawks for the next best, then there was the Crows, the Sparrows, and then there was his group, which was the Chicken Group. And it didn't feel great from, to be put from chicken. eagle or hawk to chicken, huh? So yes, exactly. The flightless bird. Yeah. Um, and 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 I think that's an example of where the school got it wrong because their theory was these kids will be motivated to work harder. And in fact, what they'd done was, as you put it, you know, some of them think of these kids as blind. What if you put the, all the blind kids in the chicken group? Well, that makes no sense. It's not fair. Um, I think the other thing that happens to teachers is they can be under a tremendous amount of pressure and financial pressure from their school to keep the identification of dyslexia out of it. I've run into a number of instances where teachers privately will say, look, this is what's going on here, but I can't tell you what else to do. And in that environment, you do need to know you have a right to this. And there are specific letters that you can give to your school district that will uh, trigger the rights that I described earlier and assure that you get an appropriate accommodation and a free and appropriate education. Thanks. We did have we did have a caller, but they fell off. So I don't know if they oh. if they if they want to call back on call, call back and, and try to get in. Um, what what would you say you you mentioned the conversations that should take place relative to other family members and i think that's an interesting point that you're raising in the book could you speak to that 
Sure. I mean, dyslexia is a genetic profile, and so if if the parents of the kids themselves are not dyslexic, it may be that a sibling or a or a grandparent or a um, or another uh, another uh, cousin in the family is dyslexic. And what's happened is that in the last uh, you know 30 years or so, we changed the law and we started identifying. So if people are under the age of 30, there's a chance that they might be identified as dyslexic. For, uh, note on language, I always say identified. A lot of people will say diagnosed, and I don't use the term diagnosed because it implies that there's a disease here. I totally agree have. with you on that. Yeah, I totally something agree that... And, and, and people will talk about, well, you can overcome this, or you right. you can um, have a remediation plan, and all those things imply that there's something wrong with you. Well, there's nothing wrong with you. There's something wrong with the environment. The environment needs to overcome its problems, and it needs to have some remediation in order to accommodate you. And we should diagnose the school as having flaws in it if it can't teach all kids. Um, now. Back to the question of the family. Um, these are very important emotional issues. And the f- basically, everyone who's dyslexic needs three things in order to be independent. The first thing they need is an orientation. Someone needs to tell them what the landscape looks like. In part, that's what I'm trying to do in this book. You can also do this by having a family member who's talking about dyslexia openly lay out some ideas for them. The next thing they need is a community. They need to be around other people who are like them so they don't feel isolated and don't feel as though they have a stigma associated with them. And then finally, they need some tools. So they need tools like Learning Ally or Bookshare. Learning Ally is a, is a service that offers human-read audiobooks that you can download on an iPhone or an Android phone. They have 80,000 in, uh, in their catalog. And then they also have services that parents can call. They have an 800 number that if you become a member, you can call and get great advice from other parents who have been through this, who are paid by the organization to give this advice. Bookshare offers free digital books, and they are supported by the federal government. And so you can go and get almost any book that your child would be assigned in a public school environment in an audio format, which is really helpful. They're, they're, they're both great organizations, I, and I recommend both to, to parents very often. Ben, we have two callers checking in, so let's pull up um, this one. Hi, can you introduce yourself? Hello? Hello, is it for me? Yes, you're from 218 Area Code? Yes. What's your Hi, first name? Hi, I'm Marianne. I'm calling from Minnesota. Hi, Marianne. And Hi. Uh, what a privilege <laughs> to speak to you. Um, Thank you. I opened up a nonprofit um, learning center and for children with disabilities and, and um, dyslexia, and um, I would love to make our community more dyslexia friendly. And I was curious if you were aware of any uh, community, um, specifically with the schools, and um, that were was. Di- um, manage to make their community dyslexia-friendly or dyslexia-smart? Well, I think it starts with parents who are motivated and ready to um, take action. And one of my favorite groups out there in that arena is an organization called Decoding Dyslexia. A lot of states Started in one. New Jersey. Yes, it did. And in New Jersey, yep. they, they're the, the, the one that's been around long. Have you heard of that group? Yes, I am involved in the Minnesota branch Great. mildly. <laughs> they're well, I, they're you know, I think um, several miles away from me. 
I, you know, I, I know that the group in New Jersey, which is at this point the oldest, and let's just take it, let's just assume every group will follow roughly the New Jersey path, which is to say two to three years in, they have already gotten three laws passed statewide in New Jersey, um, or two are, two are passed and one is, uh, is pending. Um, they've got uh, mandatory training for all teachers on dyslexia. They've got a bill that has already passed the House unanimously for universal screening early in school for all kids on whether they're dyslexic. And they've formally changed the language so that dyslexia is the word that is used as opposed to all the sort of alphabet soup of stuff that's out there. So that can make real change. I think that's good. Another thing that I think is a great group is um, Eye2Eye, which is a mentoring organization that pairs college students with elementary school students. So you get a person who is dyslexic or ADHD. And when I say dyslexia, I mean all the range of different things in this profile. I could say dyscalculia and you know, dysgraphia mm-hmm. and, and central auditory processing disorder, and I'm sort of summing them up in one term, much the way in the mm-hmm. United States when we talk about race, we say black, and actually, you know, we mean many different variations on people of African-American descent plus some other stuff. Um, so in this context, eye to eye, um, eye-to-eye-national.org is their website, they are great for growing community. They have 53 chapters around the country, and if there's one near you or you can help get one started, I think that's another great step. Um, Excellent. That's that. And then the final thing is I'd say get your kids out there. Bring your child to your IEP. Um, We are about to put a video up on the Headstrong website that teaches children how to write their own PowerPoint presentation to take to their own IEP meeting. And this can be done as young as kids who are eight years old can tell their story and learn to advocate and say, these are my strengths, these are the things I want to learn, and this is the help that I need. Excellent. Well, in our Thank community, you, oh, okay. Oh, sorry. Thank you. Oh, um, in our community, our our children, my stu- my daughter, and my my students, are the school districts are not giving them um, any kind of um, 5014 or even allowing them the chance to um, get any kind of um, IEP through the school district. You got to fight them. Okay. That's what it comes down to. I mean, it's hard to do, and, yeah. and this is the, the, the nature of community. Um, you know, you, 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 the hard lesson is that it is just going to be pushing that rock up the hill. And Excellent. You, so I am recommending every parent to read your book and hoping to empower them to be like this, you know, we have to do this. You have to make noise. That is the way to do it, you know. And, yes. and, and, and the, the phrase from the larger disability community is nothing – about us, without us. So get in there and make sure that you're heard. Okay, Marianne, thank you very thank much. You ver- thank you, Marianne. Uh, ben, okay, I have one more call. Thanks. I have one more caller on the line. We have a few minutes left, so let me try to get her up or him Great. up. Hello. Hi, Dr. Selznick. Can you hear me? I can. Who is this? Hi, this is Andrea from New Jersey. How are you? Hi, Andrea. How are you? Hi. Hi, Ben. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you we as well. We only have a How couple minutes left here, Andrea, but so yes. thank you for checking in with us. Yes, thank you. Thanks for taking my call. Um, ben, I have a first grader who is newly diagnosed with dyslexia, and we're going to be, within the next uh, few weeks, walking into our first child study team 
meeting ever to discuss uh, what accommodations and, you know, what we can do for our son. Um, what advice can you give us before that first meeting, you know, other than what we're doing is educating ourselves and learning the laws? Well, first off, congratulations for identifying it so early and getting set up in a process that sounds like you're going to really get out ahead of it. I think that's really wonderful. Early identification is very important. Um, yeah. I, you know, so I, I, what I would say is a couple things. First off, I would um, try and identify other parents in your school district who have a kid who's dyslexic or even have any other disability. You'd be surprised how similar the conversations are when it comes to a child who's uh, blind or a child who's in a wheelchair, figuring out how the school deals with that and whether they're supportive or not. Um, so that's a starting point, and you should network mm-hmm. through the PTA or you can you know, talk to folks okay. and see if you can figure that out. Second, I would figure out who your kid's favorite teacher is, independent okay. of what topic it is. It doesn't have to be their homeroom teacher. You know, it could be their gym teacher. It could be their mm-hmm. art teacher. And go in and have coffee and get to know that person okay. and say, hey, tell me about how this works. What's going to happen here? And you will often learn things about how things really work in the system. They'll say, well, turns out Squeaky Wheel gets the oil, or it turns out this is the guy who's really got the budget, so you need to talk mm-hmm. to him. So mm-hmm. that's the second thing that I would do. And then the third is I would prepare your child, if you can, to come to the IEP. They are legally included in the IEP team. The child is themselves. And as much as you can teach them about how their brain works and what their strengths are and teach them to feel comfortable asking for things that are their legal right, that will really help. Um, Some people will say, well, the kid's too young or this process is confrontational, it tends to get a lot less confrontational when you bring a young child in and let them have a voice. And it may be that the child can't stay for the full meeting. You might have your partner um, come with you, your spouse come with you and say, uh, you know, have the kid there for 10 minutes and take him for a walk. Or if that's too much, you might have them just record a little video and have that played in the meeting. But make sure that their voice is in the process. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. That's good help. I appreciate it. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Dr. Selznick. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Um, ben, we're winding up. Can you, uh, you've made some excellent points. Can you, is there a, a sum up that you would like to offer people as we, as we yeah, wind I'd say, down here? Yeah, I'd say, you know, if you're out there and you're listening to this, either today or in a future recording, get involved in the dyslexia movement. There are 30 million people in this country who are dyslexic. We have some high-profile folks that people have heard of, like Charles Schwab or Richard Branson or Whoopi Goldberg. And then we also have people who are really down on their luck. Uh, If you look at it, we're 35% of entrepreneurs, but we're 41% of prisoners in the United States. And if we can fix this issue and make it so that everyone gets an education, the education that is free and appropriate for them, then we can really change how our whole society works. And so feel like you have a community, feel like you're not alone, and focus on the emotional health of your child and their strengths. And I think, thank you, I think the key word which rings through everything you said is empowerment. Absolutely. So thank you, Ben, uh, and I invite you to visit uh, Ben Foss's website, which is www.headstrongnation.org, and get a hold of his wonderful book, The Dyslexia Empowerment Plan, and to hear other interviews that we've done and that our team has done, please visit www.thecoffeeclotch.com. 
That's the coffee, K and then clotch, K-L-A-T-C-H dot com. And uh, my website is the shutdownlearner.com. And I want to thank you for listening and make sure to also check out our sponsor from Read and Write Gold Text-to-Speech Software. So thanks again, Ben. Take care and good night, everybody. Thank you very much. Take care, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.